2: Hello, this is the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. I'm Nick Curtis. I'm Nancy Durrant.
3: And I'm Nick Clark. This is what's coming up on the show. We review Lindsay Turner's staging of Arthur Miller's The Crucible at the Gilgood Theatre.
4: She has an arrow in you yet, John Proctor, and you know it well. The devil's
0: loose in Salem. Mr. Proctor, we must discover where he's hiding.
3: Starring House of the Dragon star Millie Alcock and Succession's Caitlin Fitzgerald.
5: And for our second review, it's Beneath Place at the Young Vic.
0: First native family moves into Crescent Grove, homes to the rulers of Lagos. Ah, hey, Nigeria is changing, and you, my friends, are the trendsetters.
5: Written and directed by Kwame Kwe Amar, it stars Sherelle Skeet, who you may know from Harry Potter and the Cursed Child.
2: School's out for summer. This is tomorrow. So, in spirit of that, we speak to John O'Farrell, writer of the family-friendly Broadway and West End show
1: Mrs. Doubtfire, the musical. We started doing this show in 2019 in Seattle, then on Broadway. And even this week, we were adding lines in a couple of spots where he needs an extra couple of seconds off stage to do up his blouse.
2: He's a comedy scriptwriter, political campaigner, and has worked on many well-known projects, including Spitting Image, Have I Got News For You, and Chicken Run.
5: Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast.
2: Yeah, we're all back together in the room again. Hooray! Hooray! (laughs) And the
5: biggest story in Theatreland this week is the acquittal of former Old Vic Artistic Director Kevin Spacey, about which I'm pretty sure none of us have any opinion whatsoever. I'd just like to put on
2: record that I have absolutely no views about this whatsoever. Kevin Spacey is one of the few people to actually walk out of an interview with me when I asked you no, a question. Yes, no. Um but I, I personally have absolutely no opinions whatsoever on this case. Shall we move on? <laughs>
5: yeah, what else
2: has been going on in theatre this week, guys? <laughs> well, finally, uh, The King's Head is moving into its long-planned, purpose-built ah. new home in the converted post office behind the original pub building that it's occupied since the early 1960s, I think. Used to certainly vie with Pentameters theatre in Hampstead and the Rosemary Branch over who could claim to be London's oldest pub theatre. <laughs> <laughs> but I think The King's Head sort of edges it by the fact that it was consistently a producing theatre. It was one of the sort of pioneering pub theatre venues mm. back in the, in the 70, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. And we've been waiting ages for them to move into this built mm. thing. I remember um, interviewing the last, the last one artistic director, Ad, Adam Spreadbury-Mahar, about the move about four years ago, I think. Yeah. Um, and in the interim, Mark Ravenhill, writer and director, took mm. over.
5: Yeah, I was going to say, who, he's not artistic. He's right. not artistic. No. Right. He stood down as a result yeah. of illness. Yeah.
2: Um, and he seems to have be been living in Berlin for the past year. And and uh, they, they've had a sort of series of guest artistic directors programming right. seasons of queer work in but very sort of short, slightly bitty seasons of things. So it'll be really fascinating to see, A, what the new place is like, because I've not actually been inside mm. it. I've yeah. stood on the roof of the old theatre, looking at the wall <laughs> what the new theatre looks like and I've had a look around the foyer spaces but I've not actually been in so the not moving auditorium. too far then? No no not, no no literally I mean I think you can actually put your hand on the back wall of the old theatre right. and that's a party wall with the new theatre okay, so okay. Uh, yeah I mean the, the people aren't gonna have any problem finding it but uh, it's gonna be interesting to see what it actually is yeah, now.
5: Yeah maybe um, it's gonna be a sort of fresh start. Yeah, Yeah. in every way.
2: I was
3: literally in the Rosemary Branch this week. And it reminds me of the sort of unique space of a pub theatre in a way. Mm. And I wonder if this new space will be able to hold on to that.
2: Yeah, it's funny because that was such a big thing in the in the 90s, you know, pub theatre was really mm. where the fringe happened mm. and it's almost died out now. I mean, there are Yeah, 503 a,
5: now, I think is there still is, is still the, there. But, um, yeah, but I
2: mean yeah. the, Ellen the Chicken bush moved has, does yeah. some comedy. Yes, the Bush moved. Um the Etc theatre I think is sort of nominally still going, but these used to be the real sort of mm. lifeblood of the fringe yeah. and uh, it's again it's interesting how London theatre just sort of mutates and changes mm. over over the years. And Nick you were talking about the Almeida shows that have
3: just yeah so they were announced this week there's uh, two new shows uh, one I'm going to butcher the name completely Portia Coughlin. Coolen, <laughs> I
2: think it's Coghlan it's a long okay. time since I've seen it but uh, yeah
3: I think it was one that was going to run pre-Covid but now it's uh, it's just been re-announced directed by Kerry uh, Cracknell and uh, starring Alison Oliver Carrie um,
5: Cracknell, she she last did something at the Almeida, didn't she? When the, was it? Oil? Was it that big show? Ah, uh, yeah. Sort of epic thing. Yeah. I don't think you loved it, did you, Nick? Don't but, think I um, loved it. No. But uh, she's a great. She's a really good director, though. I yeah. Think, yeah. Hanna's she's terrific,
2: and I uh, haven't seen you know stuff by her for quite some time. No. so I'm not sure what she's been up to. Mm. But, but Alison Oliver, we were um, we all rather loved in Women Beware the Devil, that really peculiar yes. show at the Almeida. But oh, yeah. Alison Oliver, I think, is a really coming talent at the yes. moment. So it's exciting to see her in the lead of something like this.
3: Absolutely, uh, I think also at the Almeida, of course. But the other show is another King Lear. We've already got Branners coming oh, yeah. up, uh, yeah. but this one is. Uh with Danny Sapani who's great I love Uh, Danny Sapani directed by Yale Farber Uh, we'll come back to Yale uh, as well because of um, a a show we're going to talk about but um, she's not known for her brevity and
2: this play is (laughs) (laughs) not a brief one already
3: Uh, that's very true it's
5: definitely one you definitely need to make it longer
2: the only director I've known who actually made Macbeth longer (laughs) Shakespeare's shortest play (laughs) and she made it longer than the average King Lear it is on again talking about how things go in cycles in London theatre but suddenly we got this rash of Macbeths and Lears you know um, really strange that, that I presume it must just be sort of synchronicity I don't think people well, sit down and go let's all do King Lear next year
3: well unless know, is old, it on it the it? curriculum uh, that's then, my conspiracy
2: theory uh, all these yeah because yeah. maybe
5: they switch it yeah. year on year yeah, yeah. you could maybe well be right it, yeah. I think yeah.
2: Shakespeare works really interestingly in the Almeida in that yeah. open but intimate space um, yeah. I've seen some amazing stuff there over the years
5: so shall we crack on with the first review this one is The Crucible at the Gielgud Theatre
0: Either of you breathe a word or the edge of a word. And I will bring a pointy reckoning that will shudder you. Have you sold yourself- now,
5: I haven't seen this one. So, uh, although I really want to, because it sounds dead good, uh, tell me about it. So for
2: those who don't know, the uh, crucible, well, it's the story of the Salem witch trials, the historic Salem witch trials in which numerous young women accused numerous older women of witchcraft, uh, which led to numerous hangings and uh, other gruesome forms of execution, which Miller uses to mediate his response to the House Un-American Activities Panel in Congress and the works of Senator Joe McCarthy in persecuting, supposed pinkos in Hollywood, including some of his friends, and including the director Elia Kazan, who who notoriously named names to the HUAC. It seems to be an endlessly timely play. I watched it at the National and thought, this is all about fake news and it's about the way a story gets out of control and the way you can't, the whole thing about the lie getting it halfway around the world before the truth can put its boots on. Um, it's quite interesting from a Me Too perspective as well. Nick Clark, you saw it recently. Uh, what did you think?
3: Yes, Nick Curtis, I did. I saw it <laughs> last night. Um yeah, it, it is a theme that is, uh, you know, works in any age, it is endlessly applicable, this is true, and but it also speaks to sort of the foibles of humanity as well, and arse covering, and people basically, how, uh, you know, alike, and grow, and grow, and grow, and... In the end, you're executing hundreds of people. Um, Yeah.
5: Oh, darn it. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Again. There's
3: a little bit of soul searching by some people, but not a huge amount.
2: But it's also, I love the fact that it's almost, it reminds me, there are certain political things we could mention that this reminds me of, where where people who absolutely do not believe in the lie have to end up defending it. Yes. Yeah. Oh,
3: just because of their position in society. Exactly, yes. Um, And it really cuts to the core of that, I think. And that's why it'll forever be revived, I think. Um, some things don't age quite as well, the gender mm. politics. And actually, this production really leans into it. I'd never noticed this before. So clearly, the way it's directed by Lindsay Turner. It's very interesting because John Proctor, the last times I've seen him, has been this sort of alpha male hero, this wronged hero.
5: Yeah, he's sort of saintly quite often, yes. isn't he? I mean, you know, with the, the obvious flaws. But it, yeah, it, yeah. The people, he really comes out of it as the kind of In this,
3: hero. I mean, I last saw... It, We're talking about Yale Farber's production at the the, uh, Young, the Old Vic, sorry, in 2014, and that was Richard Armitage, who Mm. was uh, he. He really was an alpha male beefcake in that (laughs) role. Whereas uh, Brian Gleeson does a really good job. He's sort of much smaller. He's more crumpled. He's kind of much more world weary. He doesn't really understand the forces that are changing around him, but he also doesn't understand how he's partially responsible for the whole thing, Mm, in the sense that his treatment of Abigail is what sort of sparks this. Well, there's two things that sparks it. It appears to be some dancing that gets out of hand. It ends up with hundreds of people being hanged. (laughs) (laughs) Literally, it starts with, I think, the Reverend uh, Samuel uh, Paris, who's played, uh, again, excellently by Nick Fisher, who stumbles upon his uh, niece, Abigail, in the forest, and they're dancing. Mm. Uh, And so I think to get out of this, two of the girls who are dancing pass out, essentially, and of course, then everyone starts talking about witchcraft, including all the other girls themselves, to try and get themselves off the hook, it feels like. Then it feels like they're sort of caught in the lie and they have to just go deeper and deeper and start seeing visions and they're, you know, speaking in tongues and accusing people. And that's when bureaucracy gets in. And it's sort of really interesting about... You know, bureaucracy and its cruelty, and once it gets sort of set on a, a particular line, and how societies go down a path and sometimes can't come back again from. Yeah. it. because it's a very repressive society; it's a very repressive, sort of theocratic
2: yes. society.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we should point out that some of the moments of language uh, and references there's there's quite a, a, an extraordinary bit involving a, a doll, which is almost a sort of voodoo doll where uh, it's got a it's got a pin in it. And one of the characters, in fact, Abigail says, oh, well, I found a pin in my stomach. So whoever had this doll was clearly, you know, working their witchcraft on me. Unfortunately, this thing is called a poppet, and they must refer to poppet about 50 times in two minutes. And I, the audience around me, and certainly I was feeling as well, I was like, please, please stop saying poppet. Stop because saying It's ridiculous. <laughs> it's a
5: really silly it's word. Silly it is word. a really silly word. <laughs>
3: yes. dog, so have you yeah. ever been
2: seen with a poppet? I've never had
5: poppet. Yeah, so what's pop-it.
0: this poppet here? <laughs> <laughs> yes,
2: you're absolutely right. One tends to see The Crucible every sort of, it tends to come around every 10 years or so. This is the National Theatre production that opened uh, earlier in the year, um, transferred to the West End with some, some significant cast changes so we have Brian Gleeson stepping into the role of John Proctor and we have Millie Alcock from House of the Dragon as Abigail Williams and Caitlin Fitzgerald as John Proctor's wife Elizabeth I spoke to both of them on an earlier episode of the podcast and uh, we asked them to describe their own characters in that Millie if you'd like to go
0: first um, Abigail is one of the first kind of girls who Cries wolf, I want to say in a way, um and she kind of gets swept up into the um into. Sorry, my brain doesn't. I'm terrible. I never know what to say in these things. Um, okay, okay Ab- Abigail yeah. is a villain, but she's not a villain. I fucking love her, and I hate how people have made her this conniving, um malicious girl when she's in fact a seventeen year old who had an affair with a, an an older man who has more position of power than yeah. her, and then somehow becomes this villain and vouches for her love and is blind by it and is given a voice and doesn't know what to do with it and it kind of explodes and she's completely incapable of having a life outside of salem so she she runs away um so yeah yeah that's abby okay and Caitlin tell us a little about (laughs) that was
2: great
4: (laughs) to echo millie i i kind of hate the way elizabeth proctor is often portrayed and um, there was the first thing I said to Lindsay Turner, our director, when I met with her. Was I just I'm not interested in a prim, prissy, ice queen, um, and the sort of the way the two women are often um, played as these polar opposites. I just it feels fake to me. It yeah. Doesn't feel like women I know. So because um, yeah. there is a
2: slight implication as well that that sort of Elizabeth is somehow to blame for John's affair. Do you think, or it can be well, read that way?
4: I mean. Let's also be clear that Arthur Miller was having an affair or had just had an affair with Marilyn Monroe as yeah. he was writing this play. So I think there is, when Elizabeth says at the very end, you know, it was my fault yes. that this happened. My read of those lines is that it's it's more about, you know, it takes two people in a relationship. Um, yeah. And... And then that's always true. But, yeah, it does feel a bit like Arthur Miller giving himself a pass. He gets <laughs> a quite a lot of a pass. As the great
2: sort of liberal, you know, cerebral hero, he gets quite a free pass on quite a lot of stuff, doesn't he? Biller, he sometimes.
4: does. But I, I will also say for him, like, I think there is a version of... He could have written a version of Elizabeth uh, that was even was very one-dimensional. And I think he, he... On the page, actually, I think she's incredibly human and wins the argument yeah. frequently. And yeah. I think... As Lindsay said, it's a great writer who writes the person, the other person, that dimensionally. Yeah. Um, it's the lesser writer who goes, who just makes himself into it. Absolutely.
5: You'll be able to find that interview in the show
2: notes. I've always seen John Proctor as the hero before. Um, it's very noticeable here that both the women get two scenes each, basically. Mm. They bracket his story. I think that, that Lindsay Turner does bring out their characters wonderfully. I think mm. the great thing about Millie Alcock's mm. performance here, not to take away from Erin Doherty's performance, who played it initially at mm. the National, but Millie Alcock, you really get no sense of how... You can play it that Abigail is very much to blame or she's very much conniving in this. And I got... The, absolutely the sense here that she was just carried away by her own invention really or yeah. by her own situation as and well and her trauma and her trauma he, yes she is a teenager who has teenager been seduced by. Care. Yeah, he seduced her he's yeah. like
5: what 32, 32 or something like that yeah. and, and it, she works yeah. in his house and he's a married man and it's not allowed and she could be she, hanged for and it and probably sedu- anyway yes, and he
3: seduces her then basically ghosts her and then the wife kicks her out and they call her all sorts of names around town and so yeah. and his and defence an- <laughs> This is an amazing bit, which I don't remember this from other previous things, but basically his entire defense is. Well, it's her fault because she slept around a lot.
5: Yep. And And you're like, uh, including with you. Yes. (laughs) And there's
2: also, there's an awful line uh, by um, Elizabeth Proctor where she sort of says, oh, it was my fault for being a cold wife. And you think, bloody hell. One thing I wanted to to add, that the first time I saw The Crucible was when I was about 17 years old at the Young Vic uh, when David Thacker was running it. It was the first theatre I'd gone to voluntarily, i.e. not dragged to by my parents. (laughs) And uh, saw The Crucible. And John Proctor was played by Matthew Marsh, who in this production is playing Deputy Governor Danforth, so the guy prosecuting the witch trial cases. So um, I just thought that that's so wonderful. That's sort of you know, forty years on, well, there, forty uh,
3: years of London theatre.
5: Yeah, just yeah, in absolutely. that one thing, Is yeah. he the
3: the judge? Because yeah, he, I thought he he was wonderfully a mix between sort of Kelsey Grammer and, and um, uh, John Malkovich. I thought yes, in his that's role. that's very good. Really um, <laughs> fabulous performance. Again, it's the sort of evils of bureaucracy he hides behind the judgment, and I've made this judgment to execute these people, so these people have to also be executed, even hmm. if the facts have changed, because it wouldn't be fair. Yes, <laughs>
2: essentially it's a, it's a really it's a really terrific show for all the faults that we've sort of um picked holes in uh it, it is it's a tremendous well, I don't total think the work of theatre. The show itself. No, it's with no. They they sort of lie in the well, the time that it was written, yeah. really, and the and the, the sort of the forces driving Miller to write it, I suppose.
5: But it's important that you you can you know that that you have that problem with things like Shakespeare, which mm. is that. But then it can take rough handling. Yeah. You know, and so you can bring out other things that perhaps the the writer didn't necessarily very consciously mm. or entirely or indeed at all yeah. intend. <laughs> um, but you can you, you know it, it's valuable enough, if it's good quality, that you can that you can make that work.
2: I I really liked it at the National, but I think somehow, weirdly, it sits better in the Gielgud, and oh. I can't really explain why that is. Estevlin, the designer, um, produces this, this curtain of rain yeah. which sort of tops and tails various scenes. And there's an m-
3: amazing moment, to, to sound like a wanker, a coup de teatro, where <laughs> the court is in session at the back and suddenly it flips around. Yes,
2: that's right. It's such right. A, it's a real... <gasps> yeah and there's all a lovely there's a lovely moments. perspective on the set as well that there's sort of uh, the the stage angles back and yes. there's a there's a rectangle of sort of light above it so you look as if you're looking into a crucible the clue is the name you can sort of see this stuff boiling at the bottom of this uh, of this society really and you are zeroing in very strongly on it, um, it important to mention this is Millie Alcock's stage debut as well amazing, amazing performance hell. I know she's oh, still only 20 or 21 she I is think mesmeric I yeah. mean
3: obviously Abigail is at the forefront of all the young women but even so even when and she's not you're always just sort of checking to see cuz she just has this presence about yeah. her I thought. Yeah. Yeah. I mean everyone in this is really at the top of their game it's, it's it's just a great production I think.
2: Yeah. So it's only on until the 2nd of September so we can't urge you Nancy and everybody out oh there <laughs> yes, to quick, quick, get in there quick quick. quick quick as soon as you can. Brilliant. Right. Quick break for the adverts. Coming up I'll be joined by John O'Farrell to talk about co-writing Mrs Doubtfire the musical. Why not hit subscribe and give us a five-star rating in the meantime.
1: Hi, I'm Marisha Wallace, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast.
2: Welcome back to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. With me this week is John O'Farrell, comedy writer, novelist and co-creator with Wayne and Kerry Kirkpatrick of Mrs Doubtfire, the new comedy musical at the Shaftesbury Theatre. Welcome, John. Hello, Nick. Thanks for having me on. It's very nice to have you here. Tell the listeners a little bit about Mrs Doubtfire.
1: Well, I had done a musical on Broadway with Wayne and Kerry called Something Rotten, which has uh, yet to play over here. But it ran on Broadway for two years and has toured the States and everything. And it was um, deemed a success. So when uh, Kevin McCollum, the Producer of Mrs. Doubtfire the musical acquired the sort of back catalogue of 20th Century Fox's musicals. He said to us, "You know, uh, do you fancy having a go at Mrs. Doubtfire?" And we were immediately, "Yes, that is a big, huge brand. It'd been hard to get people to come to an unknown Shakespearean musical. Right? They struggled to sell tickets for that. So I'm all in favour of writing original musicals, but also in the economy of, you know, the West End and Broadway to have some." recognized IP, I think, helps the theatres as well. It's intellectual property for those. Yes. Who yeah. And um, it's a show that sings. It's a show that wears its emotions on its uh, sleeve. It comes from a great book originally, of course, by British author Anne Fine. Then was turned into a sort of hugely popular film. And we're obviously trading off that. People are going along because they love the film. But yeah. we undertook to make it a theatrical experience and to go a little deeper with the character of Miranda and talk about how the divorce impacted the kids. So I think it's sort of another incarnation of a beloved tale that has been book, film and now musical.
2: On the off chance that the people out there aren't aware of the film or the book, it's, uh, it's the story of a divorced dad who basically disguises himself as an elderly Scottish housekeeper to bring up his own children. Yes, after a divorce. After a divorce. uh, As a way of getting back to having securing more contact with them, isn't it, really?
1: One of the things that struck me when I watched the film and started writing it is that when I always watched the film, I thought, yeah, of course he wants to be closer to his kids. But it was a bit of a one-way street. So I have the daughter turn around and go, how is this good for us? You get to see your kids, but we don't get to see our dad. We get a character. Yeah. which is something that came out of spending a lot of time with the material, but also something which is what I'm talking about, trying to go a little deeper into some of the issues where the film didn't have room for that. Right. What does turning it into musical add to the story? And what does music add to it? I think, as I said, it gives us the chance to hear from other characters. So Miranda gets a song about her divorce. Hmm. Uh, we get to hear the kids sing about their experience of divorce and how they feel about it all. But it also brings it to a new audience, I suppose, and brings that story and those themes and that discussion around what is a normal family? Is there such a thing as a normal family? Aren't all families different? And we've updated the uh, subplot of the two brothers to make them have their own struggle to adopt a baby. It's a very small subplot, but it adds something else, I think, to the debate about modern families. Mm. So... It's not a story that has to be a musical, any more than it had to be a film when you know uh, Chris Columbus picked up Anne Fine's book. Right, the whole thing sort of stands or falls on the central performance, doesn't oh, it? Oh, um, I mean Gabriel Vick is just working his socks off at the West End. <laughs> He's incredible and has had nothing but glowing reviews, which is great. I'm it so is glad ex- him. it is an, an, an extraordinary performance. How many
2: changes does he have think, to, to and from Mrs. Doubtfire? I think like twenty five plus or something. I mean, um, it is and, amazing. A lot of these take place on stage in front of the audience, which I think is a, a rather novel. An exciting bit of sort of uh, sh- throwing yeah. light on the magic of, uh, of yeah. backstage special effects and makeup.
1: We started doing this show in 2019 in Seattle, then on Broadway, then in Manchester. And even this week, we were adding lines in a couple of spots where he needs an extra couple of seconds off stage to do up his blouse right. um, because it's been too much of a rush. And anything that goes slightly wrong, he's late on to stage. So right. it's a, even when he's not on stage, he's working really hard yeah. to make those changes. But it's not just about the changes. He has to be able to sing uh, you know, a really emotional ballad. He has to be able to do this range of voices He's got to be able to do comedy, and not every actor has comedy bones. And um, he has to tap dance. It's an incredible range of stuff that he has to do. And it's a show that will depend very much, I think, on who's playing the lead.
2: It does strike me that it's, it's a musical that appeals to families. There is stuff in there for the kids. There's lots of comedy and mm-hmm. uh, and 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 sort of emotion around the nature of family, but it strikes me as a family musical with stuff to enjoy for parents. Unlike, say, Frozen or something where most yes. parents probably want to pull their heads off halfway through the first song. I
1: mean, the film is actually quite saucy in times. So there's references yeah. to vibrators and you know uh, steroids and genitals. We 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 that down a little bit, but um, uh, and it's a show that you can take it's quite young children too, and they'll enjoy it. And any audience loves knowing what the people on stage don't know. And so that when Stuart, the uh, romantic interest for Miranda, is having a conversation with Mrs. Doubtfire and she's saying, oh, no, steer clear of Miranda. We know. Right. And Stuart doesn't know. And I think audiences just of any age, love that. So yes. uh, that sort of one up they have on the characters in a story. What's the difference in the way audiences responded on Broadway compared to London? Well, it had a weird old birth on Broadway because we had three previews and then the theatres were closed down by COVID. So there was quite a nervous atmosphere in the audience in those first three shows. I suppose the better comparison is when it was on in Seattle and it did fantastically in Seattle. It broke box office records at the Fifth Avenue Theatre there and people loved it. I think we've made the show tighter. We've changed the impressions that uh, Daniel does. <laughs> they tend to be quite British, actually. We've got Prince Charles and Boris Johnson in there, which are getting a huge response. And anything topical you put in, of course, people love it. There used to be a sense that American loved their, Americans love their musicals more than the British. But actually, New York went through a pretty weird, and Broadway went through a pretty weird sort of psychological trauma during COVID. And hmm. they have got very um, judgmental and uptight about what theatre should be. This show is a lot of fun. That's all it is. We're not changing the world. Uh, It's a family show. You'll have a great time. You'll laugh a lot. You might wipe a tear away. Uh, from your eye at the end And I think that London Is in a better place Than New York right now To enjoy a show like
2: that mm. In the past You were a regular writer On Spitting Image And How yes. I got news for you You're a novelist You've got a podcast On yes. history An amusing podcast On history Called We
1: Are History For anyone who wants To tune plug. into it You're most welcome um, But is this what you do now Is musicals what you do now No I have um, Chicken Run 2 Coming out in December Which I've co-written With Carrie Kirkpatrick And uh, Rachel Tunliff Has a credit on that as well uh, I have a novel Coming out in uh, February. So I love writing musicals and it's so great having spent 10 years on my own writing books (laughs) um, to suddenly be in a room with actors and dancers and and directors and it's very stimulating. I've got another musical in my back pocket which uh, will probably be announced uh, in the autumn and um, I'm excited about that as well. So yeah, it's a great uh, genre to come to quite late in my life. (laughs) I'm sort of thrilled and stimulated to be learning new skills uh, and having been another sort of writer the previous decades. I
2: know, I sort of know what you mean, having been a theatre critic uh, where you're up and you're sort of sitting on your own in the middle of the night just writing. It's quite nice to actually
1: do podcasts
2: <laughs> yes. and talk to people. Yes. Really, yeah, sort of, I feel
1: myself quite socialized yes, for a change, exactly. you know, no, rather that than. Is an issue. This. Yeah. yeah. So I used to yeah. image. I used to be in a room with five or ten writers. We were all teasing each other and going out for lunch together. You go off and write a novel, and it's like I haven't talked to anyone else for a year. You know, right. and uh, that's why uh, suddenly coming into a theatre is amazing. Even mm. if they do make me sit cross-legged in a circle, which is a bit of a struggle for me. Right, <laughs> <laughs> for all of us these days, I think. Yeah. Anything you can tell us about Chicken Run Two? Yeah, it's coming out in uh, early December on Netflix. There might be a limited uh, cinematic release for uh, awards purposes, but it's really going to be on your TV screens at home. Uh, you'll remember. Mm-hmm you know, 23 years ago, I think, those chickens breaking out of Tweedy Farm. Uh All I can say is this time they're breaking in. It's a heist movie. Fantastic.
2: That was John O'Farrell, co-writer of Mrs Doubtfire, the musical.
5: Coming up right after this short break, we'll be reviewing Beneath His Place at the Young Vic. See you back here in just a minute.
4: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.
3: Hi, I'm Matthew Modine, and you're listening to the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast. Welcome back to the podcast.
5: I'll have you know, Auntie, I'm a respectable, you're about woman now. Eh, ah, okay. Mm-hmm. Say good morning. A caro.
2: Right, Beneath's place.
5: Nick, you reviewed this one for the paper. So what did you think?
2: I really liked this. I was a slightly lone voice. I think a lot of people were, were a bit more lukewarm about it, but I really enjoyed you it. You mean the other reviewers? Yes, I do. Yes, sorry. First of all, Beneatha is a character who appears in Lorraine Hansberry's A Raisin in the Sun, a pioneering like play on Broadway. And her arc in that original play is is which man she is going to marry and what is she going to do where is her future going to be is it going to be in america or is it going to be in a, as part of a sort of back to africa movement where people you know are, are going back to reclaim you know and, and rebuild
5: this is set during the that's in the 50s that's in it? the 50s like, yeah, yeah and, the, and part of this play is that also so the beginning of this play this extrapolates her the sort of development of her life and her politics
2: she is effectively it, well into her 80s by yeah, the end exactly. of yeah uh, exactly <laughs> and, and it's written by Kwame Kwe Amar it's written and directed by Kwame screw. Kwe Amar, and it's um, the as, artistic director as well of as, the young work indeed as well as being inspired by uh, A Raisin in the Sun it's partly a clapback as Cheryl Skeet put it and a response to uh, Bruce Norris's Clybourne Park mm. so this play begins with with the sort of idealism of the 1950s and of the uh, newly independent African nations
5: and it, although let's point out it is set in Nigeria. It is set in Nigeria, yeah, And yes. it is not yet independent. It is not yet
2: independent. Ghana mm. is, I think, the the, yes. the one nation that has become independent. And, and this is an inspiration to those hoping to form the government of an independent Nigeria. The second half also takes place in Nigeria. But the argument in the second half is all about the teaching of black history and whether it should actually be a teaching of white history. Privilege, effectively, or white guilt, I suppose. Mostly
5: by white people. Mostly by white people. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite weird, that structure, isn't it? Because, and I think it does follow deliberately, that sort of dramatic structure of Clybourne Park, which is like, I think, as you said in your review, all drama in the first half. Yeah. And all talk in the all second. Argument all argument in the argument second. Yes, the yes, second. yes. And then when you describe it, it does sound like. Sorry, is that two totally different plays? Um, and it sort of has that weird feeling. Yeah, but it does work.
2: It I does think. work. I think. It, yeah, it does. It does work very well. It's interesting because it's addressing the fact of basically how. From an explicitly mm-hmm. racist society in the 1950s and 60s in, in America, America yeah. and, but also I would say by extension in Europe, mm. uh, Northern Europe. Well, um, and
5: also we're in Africa under absolutely.
2: colonial rule at yes. this point as well. Yes. So. And Benita and her husband are, in, are quite mm-hmm. literally inheriting a house from white Christian missionaries yep. uh, who stick around to tell her how to turn on the lights. Oh my God. Things like that you know, magnificently oh patronizing... God, it so, yeah, makes you want to... It oh. does. <laughs> uh, but now we find ourselves weirdly where similarly reactionary forces are basically trying to impose a sort of Post race
5: narrative yeah. on race in the second half. This is it's actually yeah. I realise quite complicated to explain. <laughs> it's quite complicated to explain, but not as complicated as the kind of like the the complexity of the discussion of race in the play, which yeah. I think that it might we might be on a hiding to nothing of trying to really get into in the fifteen minutes or whatever it is that we've I got to talk. I think it's going to be almost about, um, but, uh,
2: it's it's almost yeah. impossible to sort of um, to unpick it all. But yeah. I do think it is. It's. I think this just goes into really interesting areas, yeah, this yeah. play. I really. found it really stimulating, really interesting. It touched on lots of things that are slightly buried in the discourse at the moment.
5: It's also interesting on the kind of looping narratives between America, Britain and Africa at that time. And indeed now, I think, you know, there are no British characters, but mm-hmm. they are the colonising group in Nigeria in yeah. the 50s. Yeah. So they're the backdrop. It was interesting to hear that discussion uh, in the first half between Benita and her husband, Joseph. Uh, she's from Chicago. She was born there and he's from uh, Nigeria. Yeah. He's Yoruba. But like, it was really interesting to hear the differing views of blackness that emerge between those two people, an mm. African-American and someone who's grown up in a majority black society but under white colonial rule. It's just a discussion I've not heard and obviously not thought about particularly. So those those two people of colour talking about it and coming at it from different angles, it was just, it is, it's super stimulating and really, really interesting, I yeah. think. And there
2: is, the, the, you know, the issue of gender is in there as well, that, uh, you know, Benita is quite a pioneering radical mm. figure in the 50s and remains so. And I have to say, it's a fantastic performance from Sheryl. ski I was going to ask
3: oh, about Cheryl because yeah, obviously she sort of rose to prominence in Harry Potter. She mm-hmm. played um, the daughter of Noma Dumuzwani's, uh uh, Hermione, yeah. I think she was called Rose Granger. But last year, it was the first person I interviewed for the Evening Standard, Ugh, but uh, yeah. she was in a play called The Fellowship at Hampstead, in which she had to step in at the last minute oh, yeah. Yeah. to yes. take on the lead role. And initially, I think she had one or two performances script in hand, but had pretty much learnt it and was yeah. on by, if not press night, then very shortly afterwards. And got rave reviews for it, so she's clearly a star on the rise. And so, how was she on, on taking this? One?
2: She's terrific, and I think I think in some ways that uh, I think we spoke about it when I interviewed her for the podcast. That uh, that was quite good practice because she was cast in that play, *The Fellowship*, as a mm. as a young character. Suddenly, found herself taking on this middle-aged role, and mm. she's you know she's relatively young still herself. Here, she has to age 60 years and does so with very little makeup and really with a minor adjustment of posture, which I think yeah, is extraordinary. Yeah, it's an
5: adjustment of posture and a, and a different wig. Yes, yeah. actually. And- it's literally what does it. But That's it's right. very it's very striking, so it's, it, it yeah. works really well, I think. It's very good,
2: and she has a tremendous presence on stage, Sherelsky. She, mm. she sort of exudes authority here as Benita, her, and very quietly. She says relatively little in the second half. Yeah. In fact, a lot of it is a is lot of the characters white-splaining to her. Oh, God, it's just honestly. Just, I, <laughs> I
5: did put my face in my hands quite a few times. It was yeah. quite upsetting. <laughs> I sort of feel like she almost doesn't have quite enough to do in the first half either. She actually speaks remarkably little for a main character, Mm. I think. And she's not got a great deal of agency in the first half. She's just trying to work out why her husband is behaving the way he is. And it's because of an argument that he's had with fellow party members. He's a, a, a member of the Independence Party and kind of thought to be a guiding light. So actually considering all of that, the fact that she has that presence is even more impressive.
2: Yes, yes, I agree. Quick shout out to Zachary Momo, who's oh, a relative yeah. newcomer who plays Joseph, her husband, and then plays a young junior member of faculty uh, called Wally, uh, or Wally as a so the all characters intended, insist yeah. on referring to him. Um, he's just brilliant.
5: I went with a friend who uh, I'd forgotten actually but she spent some time at American universities and she found it genuinely disturbing how much um, Kwame Kweama Amar nails that kind of self-importance of, um, of American academia. You're lauded and you're paid a lot and you're mm. given so much freedom and you can just be as awful <laughs> and, sort of, <laughs> and, and sort of think that everything that you're doing is so, so incredibly important.
4: I agree with Mark. As a research
5: university, we pride ourselves at being at the cutting edge of innovation. Yes, this subject has been around for a while, but I think Mark's iteration of it is a middle finger to the governor and all his culture war cronies. It's exactly how we should be hitting back. It is, dare I say the word, progressive. Progressive. And it is quite a funny play. I'm not sure it's quite funny enough, but it is quite, I think quite a funny um, play. At the same time as making you cringe, and talking about incredibly important issues, they do also make you laugh.
2: It's not a perfect play. I think no, it's awkward but, on lots of levels. It's yeah, an awkward that's watch. Yeah,
5: that's a good word, yeah. actually. Uh, yeah. You know, it's
2: uncomfortable, but yeah. it, and, it's, and, and there are awkwardnesses about the way it's put together. But yeah. uh, but as I said, I found it altogether a stimulating experience. Yeah, it's, um, it's
5: fascinating. To, and it made me not want to ever hear any white people talk about race ever again. Yeah. And it also made me want to read more. And it made me want to read a lot about the history of Nigeria mm. as well, actually. It's, Specifically, not just the colonial history, but the pre-colonial history yes. as well. I just think there's, yeah. I was just like, oh, I'm really, I really want to know more about that. Mm, yeah, so, yeah. I think it's really worth seeing, but you really don't have that long, actually, Nick, to see it. <laughs> um, so get in quick. And that's it for this week's episode of the Evening Standard Theatre Podcast.
2: Thanks to our guest this week, John O'Farrell. You can find all our interviews, which include Sherelle Skeet, Caitlin Fitzgerald, and Millie Alcop, down below. Plus, you can find
3: all our latest reviews straight from Press Night at standard.co.uk. That's also linked below.
5: Thanks as ever to our producer, Rachel Abbott. And if you are yet to do so, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and give us a nice, big, fat five-star rating. We'll see you next week.